the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finner. We've got an awesome show for you today. In this half hour of the show, we'll be interviewing noted author and lecturer, Rabbi Joseph Talushkin, coming to town this week on Wednesday at Oakland University. We'll talk about that. Second half of the show, we'll be featuring insights into the portion of the week, which this week is the portion of Beshalach, which can be found for those of you who are following at home. In the book of Exodus, chapter 14 and following, we've got wonderful music scattered throughout the show, a dynamite story at the end. This one's a real head-scratcher, actually. Before we do anything else, let's go right to the news. IDF forces carried out a raid in Jenin looking for wanted terrorists. Nine Arabs were killed in the raid. In return, Palestinian Authority Chairman Mahmoud Abbas said that the Palestinians would no longer go on joint patrols with the IDF, and Hamas fired two rockets into southern Israel. No injuries or damage was reported. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken will be in Israel this week for talks with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Talks will focus on maintaining calm in the Middle East, Israel's involvement in the war in Ukraine, and possible expansion of the Abraham Accords. A 17-year-old boy was rescued from a minefield in the Golan. It is believed that the boy entered the field on purpose. It took several hours for the rescue. Vladimir Putin met with Chief Rabbi of Russia Beryl Lazar to discuss Holocaust Remembrance Day, which was last Friday. Rabbi Lazar told the Russian president that care should be taken to end suffering against all individuals. 
436 acts of anti-Semitism were reported in France last year, down 23% from 2021. And we usually like to end off on a good note, but I'm not so sure about this good note. Michael Woodberg was hired by the Richmond, Michigan School District as a middle school principal this last September. Woodberg received death threats and anti-Semitic notes shortly thereafter. He resigned his position last week. Woodberg could not be reached for comment. And that's the news. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the -the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital, the same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herr Schulfenman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. It is our great honor and esteemed pleasure to have uh, this morning Rabbi Joseph Telushkin, noted author and lecturer, will be coming to Detroit this Wednesday at Oakland University. Check for local times. How are you today? Uh, uh, can I call you Rabbi Yosef? Joseph, how would you like Rabbi to Yosef, Rabbi Yosef is fine. And I'm very happy to be on your program, and I'm very much looking forward to speaking in a few days in Detroit. Okay, wonderful. You've written uh, a whole host of books, and most of them deal with Judaism in general, and uh, Jewish thought, and uh, you know, what we call Hashkafa. But you wrote a book about the Rebbe, which, first of all, it's very specific, and it's a biography. So what was the impetus to writing a book about the Rebbe? Uh, it came about actually in an interesting way. First of all, I had grown up in a household uh, where the Rebbe was held in great reference. My father, Shlomo Tulishkin, Allah Shalom, was the accountant uh, for Chabad, starting actually with the uh, previous Rebbe, known obviously in Chabad circles by the word previous, Friedrich. Friedrich Rebbe, from the time Chabad arrived in America. And my grandfather, Allah Shalom, also had a very close relationship both with the previous Rebbe and the current Rebbe. I had not really grown up as much involved other than, you know, extraordinarily positive feelings. And then a dear friend of mine, Rabbi Zalman Schmatkin, who's the, been the head for many years of Chabad.org, urged me uh, for a couple of years, uh, as we approached the Rebbe's yard site, the day of the Rebbe's death, to publish an article about him and Chabad. And he specifically said, and don't publish it in an Orthodox Jewish publication. Try and get it into a more general publication. And I wrote such an article on the 12th anniversary of when the Rebbe was Nifter, when the Rebbe had died. And, in the, and I published it in the Forward, which is a rather secular Jewish paper. 
And in writing the article, I you know, had occasion to think in a more systematic manner about the Rebbe. At that time, it had been 12 years since he had died. And I remember when he died, a lot of people were predicting that if Chabad did not have a successor, an eighth Rebbe, the movement within a matter of years would go into steep decline and and be lost. And here... I realized 12 years had passed since the Rebbe had died, and the number of shluchim, the number of Chabad emissaries, had doubled. Not only, you know, normally when a charismatic leader dies, at best a movement will hold its own, but more often it'll start to decline. And here was Chabad, 12 years after the Rebbe's death, really uh, growing and growing greatly. And interestingly, now we're looking at almost 30 years since the Rebbe's death, and the growth has continued. So I realized we were dealing with the most unusual sort of leader, a leader who can exert such an impact even subsequent to his demise is an unusual phenomenon. And that's what really motivated me to think, wait, there is an important book to be written here. That's amazing. Okay, so the book is called The Rebbe. There's lots of Rebbe's out there, and it would seem that, just to avoid confusion, you might want to call it the Lubavitcher Rebbe or call it, using the Rebbe's name, Rabbi, an autobiography of Rabbi Menachem M. Schneerson or something of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, but she chose the title The Rebbe. If you could explain, please. Okay. Strangely enough, you're actually making... A small error. I didn't call the book the Rebbe. I called the book Rebbe, but there's a very prominent subtitle, The Life and Teachings of Menachem M. Schneerson, the most influential rabbi in modern history. That would have been a mouthful to get in as the actual title of the book. Now, your instinct is correct. I originally was going to call the book the Rebbe, and my publisher, Harper Collins, vetoed it. And they vetoed it because there was another book published a few years before mine called The Rebbe. It was published by a prestigious press, Princeton University Press. It was not a particularly friendly book. Uh, I don't want to, you know, uh, go into it, but uh, the book interpreted actions of the Rebbe, I think, in my view, in an incorrect manner and in a somewhat, and on occasion, bordering bordering on the hostile. Uh, but my publisher said most of our books, or a very large percentage of our books, are now sold on Amazon. This is just an interesting note for people to hear. And if your book's called The Rebbe, so there are going to be two books with the same title, and people might end up ordering the other one and not yours. Now, the funny thing is, that really was the reason why I changed the title. But a friend of mine, you know, comes from what the, would be called the Haredi, the, uh, for lack of a better translation, the ultra-Orthodox uh, movement, uh, commended me for calling the book Rebbe. He said, because, you know, Chabadniks always refer to the Rebbe as the Rebbe, and, that's be, and a lot of people outside of Chabad, when they say the Rebbe, they mean uh, uh, the seventh Rebbe. And he said it's insulting to other Hasidic groups, you know, because all Hasidic groups, of which there are many, refer to their leader as the Rebbe. So I got a compliment, even though I didn't really deserve it. 
but you know, but that's how it came about. But I, but obviously, you know, there are two figures I'd say in the modern Orthodox world who are, so to speak, known nicknames. Is you know, is a, it's not the right expression, but uh, in Chabad, of course, uh, the uh, the Rebbe, and many many people outside of Chabad do that because he became so well known. And the other figure is Rabbi Soloveitchik, Allah Shalom also, uh, who was called the Rav. Now, obviously, the term Rav applies to any uh, rabbi, but somehow, you know, he became known. And I have a sneaking suspicion that even a century from now, when people say the Rebbe, they're going to mean Menachem Mendel Schneerson. And when they say the Rav, they're going to mean uh, Rabbi uh, Joseph uh, Soloveitchik. Okay. Our guest today is Rabbi Joseph Telushkin. He's uh, coming to town this coming Wednesday at Oakland University. I believe at 7 p.m. is the uh, the time he'll be starting speaking. Check uh, check around on the web. I don't have the invitation. Sorry. Okay. So let's back up even further a little bit. Yes. There are there have been I have, we have we have a library at Jewish, Jewish Ferndale, and we have one shelf of books about the Rebbe. It's just, it takes up a whole entire shelf. So there were books already out that by this is a I don't know if this is a verb biographied the Rebbe that we're, we're talking about the Rebbe's life. So what was it that you felt was necessary that needed to be conveyed that hadn't been conveyed in any of these previous books that had been published, Rabbi Kulishkin? Okay. So without Chas Shalom demeaning any other uh, book, I didn't even intend particularly to demean the book that I mentioned, which I thought was unfair. Uh, I still think it was unfair, but there was some you know, worthwhile things one could uh, read there. Uh, I had a take. Now, if anybody who reads my book, and I hope some of you will be motivated, it's you know certainly available on Amazon, and it's going to be available uh, at my lecture Wednesday night. I didn't do a comprehensive biography of the Rebbe's whole life. What I really was interested in doing was a comprehensive biography of the Rebbe's years of leadership of Chabad. Virtually a full half of the Rebbe's life uh, had passed before he became uh, the Rebbe of Chabad. And that involved his years growing up in Russia during a very difficult period because as uh, when he was still quite young, uh, the communist, you know, in his teens, the communist revolution uh, took place. And though the Tsarist governments had been anti-Semitic, uh, the communists uh, really wanted to wipe out uh, Judaism. They wanted to wipe out all religions, but they had a particular focus on Judaism. And then so the Rebbe uh, left, uh, and, and he studied in Germany at university, highly unusual uh, for a potential uh, Rebbe. And then he studied in Paris. And then he had to escape after the Nazis invaded and took over. So, first of all, I don't have the great language skills. I, I know some Yiddish, but my Yiddish is schwach. My Yiddish is weak. And uh, and I certainly don't have appropriate Russian or German language skills. Uh, my French would, would not make me a, a great a great French scholar. So, number one, I was really interested 
the Rebbe was a breakthrough leader. You know, as to the point I was making earlier, a leader who left behind a movement that doubled in size, who left behind a movement in a country in which Jews were more apt to become assimilated than to become more religiously committed. And so I identified what I call seven virtues of the Rebbe, and those of you, uh, God willing, if you have the chance to come, this is, I'm going to be speaking about five of them. And so I wrote the book outlining and developing what were those special traits of the Rebbe, his optimism and the careful choosing of words. Any listeners to this broadcast who are familiar with Chabad, familiar with Chabad Shluchim, know that as a general rule, they do emanate a great optimism. And believe me, we all are aware that being optimistic it doesn't come so easily to people in this world. Uh, but that really was the case. I remember during the years I was working on the book, I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and I would take uh, the subway, which literally, the number three train in New York, literally drops one in front of 770 Eastern Parkway, the headquarters of Chabad. And uh, sometimes I would say, you you were at Chabad today, weren't you? And I said, yeah, why? He said, because you're in good mood. And often being among people who had such faith was very, very powerful to me. You know, another trait of the Rebbe's was his unusual work ethic. Uh, His father-in-law, the previous Rebbe, said at 4 a.m., I don't know if Menachem Mendel's going to sleep or waking up, you know, he, he would work very long hours and uh, and never thought of retiring. Uh, when a uh, Chabadnik, a uh, big fo- a follower of the Rebbe, brought his, uh, I think it was his father-in-law, it was either his father or his father-in-law, and the man had said to the Rebbe in passing, well, I just turned 70, so I'm getting ready to retire. And the Rebbe would say to him, I don't use that word, retire. Why would anybody want to retire from life? So his work ethic, you know, was very, very, a very central part of him. And obviously a lot of Chabadniks try and and imitate it. Or the ability of the Rebbe to express disagreement without being disagreeable. This is something I know I'm going to speak about. The Rebbe when he would, the Rebbe said, I criticize shitot, not people. I criticize uh, shitas, the Hebrew uh, meaning approaches. I criticize approaches. I don't criticize. He didn't attack people by name. And this led to a remarkable feature that the Rebbe could work together with people with whom he had had sharp disagreements. And but because he hadn't attacked them personally, one of the curses currently currently befalling the United States is there is such a level of mistrust and disrespect and assumption of evil intentions currently between the two political parties in the United States. Obviously, there are a few exceptions in each, but the public postures today of the heads of both political parties is so disrespectful that it's hard to imagine them being able to work together, even if the issue is very, very important to America. I, look, I assume God, yeah, there was a, a break, you know, after 9-11, when it was such a shocking 
crime. But by and large, it's hard to maintain respect when you don't show respect uh, and you attack. And so the Rebbe, uh, it was very important to me to come up with that title for that chapter, How to Disagree Without Being Disagreeable, because we don't have good role models of that. So this is what I wanted to emphasize. Uh, the Rebbe had approaches in human relations that I thought were distinctive and unusual and a reflection of his personality and a reflection of what he saw as Ikar, what he saw as central to Jews. Look, the mere fact that Chabad, his different way of looking at things. Uh, when the Rebbe started the campaign to get more Jews to put on tefillin, for those of you who don't know what tefillin are, they're phylacteries. No, I mean that jokingly, because I've never heard of somebody using the word phylacteries who actually put them on every day. Uh, so when the Rebbe started his campaign, you know, they'd stop people in the street. Are you Jewish? And if you are, if it was a man, they invited him to put on tefillin. If it was a woman, uh, they would give her uh, candles, uh, you know, to uh, light on Shabbat. Strangely, you know, so we can understand there was some opposition to this tefillin campaign. There were Jews who were embarrassed by seeing Jews, you know, putting on tefillin. It you know, seems like a very old right, and it seemed to mark Jews off as looking peculiar. So for obvious reasons, there were Jews who didn't like being stopped in the street and asking, are you Jewish? But strangely enough, even from the religious right of Chabad, uh, actually from some of the figures in what it would be more identified as the Haredi community, there was also opposition, because they argued what, you're going to put filling on somebody and he'll make some sort of a blessing and then maybe he'll walk into a coffee shop and, and order ham and eggs? And therefore they wouldn't want such people to put on filling. The Rebbe's attitude was different, that each mitzvah had a value in and of itself. So having somebody put on filling was valuable, even if the person subsequently violated some other very basic Jewish laws, each each step was valuable. You know, it's interesting. When John Glenn, the astronaut, circled the globe, uh, so, you know, I I remember, you know, people thought of the, this was a first step on uh, en route to people uh, walking on the moon. And, you know, there's a famous old Chinese proverb. I forgot who said it, but it's a very old proverb. It, it dates from the BCE, before the Common Era. Uh, you know, it says a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And that's how people generally understood the Rebbe's encouragement of one Aliyah. You know, what that statement means is the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, but these steps are all geared towards the journey. One of the chidushim, one of the new insights of the Rebbe was, no, each step has a value in and of itself. So obviously the hope was that if somebody who's been a non-observant Jew starts to keep uh, this mitzvah or that law, you know, eventually it'll lead to a transformation of the person. But the Rebbe wasn't insisting on that, l'chatchila, to be, you know, to begin with. The Rebbe said each mitzvah a person performs, each commandment a person fulfills, 
The word mitzvah obviously is Hebrew for commandment, but in popular parlance, it often means a good deed, you know, has value in and of itself. So that's why I thought he was uh, was a transformational figure. The Jewish world was not the same as a result of his years of leadership, and I think that's what intrigued me to want to work on the book. And believe me, I've written, I think, either 18 or 19 books. Uh, this is the one on which I spent the most time. I, I silly, naively thought I was, it was going to take me two years, you know, and it took five years. And I could have spent more time, but I felt at the end of the five years, I, was, I also was ready uh, uh, to publish Okay, our guest today again is Rabbi Joseph Telushkin. He's a noted author and lecturer coming to town this Wednesday at Oakland University. Going to be talking about the the Rebbe, and that day happens to be the day that the Rebbe became Rebbe. That's why it's specifically that day was chosen. Okay, um, you mentioned, I have to ask this question. I wasn't going to ask this question because I did not know about it, but um, you mentioned that there were seven characteristics of the Rebbe, and you're going to talk about five of them. So what are the two characteristics that you're not going to be talking about Uh this day? Uh, I actually hope to get in a little something about all seven. But uh, the mission to the world, which was yet another uh, feature of, uh, of the Rebbe, that uh, there is a tradition in the Talmud called the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach, which uh, when people, B'nai Noach means children of Noah. And Jews commonly think of themselves as B'nai Abraham. You know, we're children of Abraham, children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and Noah was, Noah was the person who the Torah refers to as a tzaddik, and Noah was not Jewish. And when God destroyed the world because of the great evil within it, Noah was the one righteous person that he kept alive. So the rabbis had a list of seven commandments uh, that Jews should not should want to see practiced by everybody. And many of these commandments have derivatives, you know, obvious things not to not to murder, not to steal, not to blaspheme God. One of them, strangely enough, is even not to commit an act of great cruelty towards animals. People would sometimes, in those days, you know, they would cut off the limb, a limb from a living animal just to eat it, and obviously. So uh, the Rebbe revived that tradition. He felt that America was such a a special place, because, you know, who are we fooling? In Eastern Europe, Jews just wanted to be left alone. They were happy if they were just left alone. They certainly didn't want to start trying to propagate Judaism's ethical teachings in a world that was already hostile uh, towards them. And even in Western Europe, Jews also were happy if they were, uh, you know, granted some sort of civic rights. But they certainly didn't want to see be seen as going out. So that was one of the things. And also. I probably uh, won't speak, I, no, but I will actually. I'm going to end up speaking on six. <clears throat> the Rebbe and his love of neighbor and his focus on the individual. You know, because probably the most famous law 
in the Torah is the law, love your neighbor as yourself. And one would think that that plays a very central role in Judaism. But often we saw that it didn't play the role it was supposed to. The Talmud going so far as to claim that the reason the Second Temple was destroyed was because of hatred within the Jewish community. And listen, anybody who follows the news you know, knows that in the one specifically Jewish country in the world, there is not all that much goodwill between opposing Jewish factions, and it's a scary thing. So I'm also going to be speaking, I, I am not, uh, yeah, I'm probably going to end up speaking on six, and you know what, I'll probably want to get in something on Judaism's mission to the world. Okay, very good. Now, okay, so <laughs> you mentioned at the onset, your grandfather was involved with the Lubavitch uh, Rebbe, right. the, your father was worked and was involved with. So then yes. I'm, I'm therefore assuming that you had personal interactions with the Rebbe, and uh, perhaps you could share some of that. Okay, strangely enough, you know, and there are things that we regret about our past, I only had one yechidut, you know, one uh, private encounter with the Rebbe, and it was with my father and grandfather, and the Rebbe's prefer the Rebbe. It's now somewhat widely known. The Rebbe was a linguist, and he really could converse with people in many different languages: English, Hebrew, Yiddish. You know, to cite the more obvious ones, German, because he had been a student in Germany, France, because he had been a student in France, Russia, uh, where he had grown up, Polish. Uh, but his preferred language generally was Yiddish, and that's what he spoke to my father and grandfather in. My father was sort of like whispering to me, because my Yiddish is schwach, my Yiddish is weak. So, you know, my grand, my father was sort of whispering to me what was going on. At the end, I was preparing to go to learn in Eretz Yisrael to study at a yeshiva, Kerem in Israel. So at the end, I spoke to the Rebbe, and I think we actually spoke in Hebrew. Uh, so... Believe me, when I was working on the book, you know, for obvious reasons, I miss my I miss my father terribly. I miss my grandfather terribly. Uh, but particularly when I was working on the book, I just wanted to probe their minds and their memories because my father was an accountant. You know, he didn't he kept a very professional silence about what he was what he was doing. So I had had less. That one yechidus, because it was not a short one, it was, I think, about 45, 40, 45 minutes, you know, I was there with the Rebbe, but I wish I had known more than, <laughs> I wish I had known what I know now when I had that opportunity to meet with him. Okay, that's going to wrap it up, actually. This has been wonderful. We could talk for the whole hour, but we have to be moving on. <laughs> we want to thank you so much, Rabbi Joseph Telushkin. will be coming to Oakland University to be speaking about the, the Rebbe. Uh, or you're just speaking about Rebbe, but uh, <laughs> being glib. And uh, that's going to be Wednesday night. The, uh, it is a, uh, there's no charge for it, and uh, you'll contact your local Chabad house for information. Uh, Thursday, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock at Oakland University. I want to thank Rabbi Joseph Telushkin. I want to thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing some of your time with us. Rev Hershley, you asked me great questions. I'm sorry that I gave each one such long answers. You were perfect. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, thank you so much. I wish you much, Hasacha, and all that you're doing with Chabad, and all you're doing in every aspect of your life. So thank you, and 
for those of you, God willing, who I'll see on Wednesday, please come over and say hello. And uh, this was a great pleasure. Thank you. Okay, take care. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. That was pretty amazing. We got up. We have to like change the modality. Like it's like really hard sometimes to just segue from one to the other. But this should be an easy one. This is an upbeat, upbeat in life of the song. This is Yoni Z, and it's called "We Belong." I don't look like you. You don't have my view. Both of us are on a journey I am my own star You are who you are Yet we're part of one great story It's in your eyes I can truly feel There is something real That's pure and loving In your voice there's a message heard You're the one to show the world We
We all know there's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. That's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Herschel Fitman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We received the request. If you'd like to hear some kind of music specific in uh, genre or artist or a specific song specifically, so drop me a line at rabbifinman.com and we'll do our best. So we received a request from Sam in Huntington Woods. This one's for you, Sam. He requested to hear the Fisher Lead, which is a, a traditional klezmer song. A Fisher Lead means a fisherman's song, and I'm not sure why it's called a fisherman's song. Maybe in some editions it has words, but I've never heard it. So this is the Klezmatics doing the Fisher Lead, and it's just for Sam.
one was for Sam. I hit the Cosmetics Fisher Elite. I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you for, for uh, recommending it. It's a really great piece. You have, again, if you want to have some kind of something to request, drop me a line at rabbifinman.com. Up next, this is brand new. This is Eighth Day. Their latest song is called Ben Amram. And it's got something to do with Moses, who was the son of Amram. Today is precious, one of a kind Yet so many ways are making me blind Under the surface, hidden behind Facades and filters So I live in the moment, I open my eyes All of the beauty won't pass me by Life is much more than comments and likes Approval from strangers When you're lost and out of touch There's more to you than what the screen will show I look up and see There's a big world made for me It's my life and it's my life that's worth living You can free your mind is worth more than a picture could say. All of the best things can't be erased. They're yours forever. If you feel alone and not enough, when you're lost and out of touch, there's more to you than what the screen will show. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? 
Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. This week in the synagogues, we will be reading the portion of Bishalach. It is found in the book of Exodus, in chapter 14 and following. The big story is, of course, the splitting of the Red Sea with the ensuing song that Moses sang, Oz Yosher, which is known as the Song by the Sea. Immediately thereafter, the Jews find themselves in the desert. And being that they only had so much that they could carry as far as provisions, they ran out of food. And it's amazing to me, this is like, this doesn't get talked about at all by anybody anywhere, that you have 600,000 families and they were able to carry out supplies that lasted a month. Okay, it was, it was matzah. They had the matzah that they took with them. But even still, um, that's a lot of matzah. 600 families worth of matzah for a month? And they were able to carry it out. But like I say, nobody talks about it. I don't know any of the the who, what, whys, whens, wheres. But when they ran out of food, now comes the big story. They wake up in the morning and they look outside and on on the field, there's this stuff. And they say, what is this stuff? And the way that you see, say, what is this stuff is manna. That's what the word manna means. Manna means stuff. And uh, that's what they ate for the next 40 years while they're in the desert was simply stuff. One of the things which we can sort of like take lessons, there are lessons in the, in the Bible. Every word is a lesson in the Bible. So some lessons are, are like, well, yeah. And some of them are like, oh, no, really? So we got an oh, no. Because when is it that the Jews came to Moses and said, you know, we have nothing to eat? Was not on the morning, a month after they left Egypt, when there was nothing in their, their uh, nothing to eat. And they said, you know, we, we got nothing to eat. Oh, so what are we going to do? But rather, it was the day before, when they still had enough provisions to last them through the day. And they came to Moshe and said, Listen, we, we have no more food. Tomorrow, we're going to die of starvation. So this is, this is, a, uh, this is a, a wondrous thing. I mean, Jews have this like in, <laughs> inbred within us. We're always wondering about where are we going to get fed next? And such that there are, there are laws in the Code of Jewish Law, which would fit under the laws of etiquette. For example, that you're supposed to leave over something on your plate as an indication that you're not worried where your next meal is. But choose, you know, <laughs> Jackie Mason has this line where um, Jews, what are they talking about at breakfast? They're talking about lunch. And what are they talking about lunch? They're talking about dinner. And what are they talking about at dinner? 
how this dinner is not as good as this other dinner that they had. So there is this, there is this, <laughs> this food, food, I don't know, fascination that Jews have. And uh, my grandmother was like, my bubby, she should rest in peace. Walking, how are you going to eat? If, how are you going to get fat if you don't eat? Was her line. Or if you weren't hungry, have a piece of fruit. It was like she wasn't doing her job unless you were eating. What's the deal with the manna? The manna came on a daily basis. Except on Friday they got a double because, after all, you have the Shabbos. And Shabbos is supposed to rest. You're not supposed to be going out and collecting stuff. So they uh, they had to get it every single day. And they were told... Nothing left over. Don't leave anything over. And there's uh, examples where people left over. It became wormy and rotten and disgusting and smelly. And, and uh, they got yelled at for doing that. Because the manna was an exercise for 40 years in faith in God. That tomorrow we're going to wake up and it's going to be, there's going to be food. And regardless of what happened the day before, the day after the Jews worshipped the golden calf and messed up the entire creation process, when they woke up in the morning, there was food. Because the Almighty takes care of us. There are, what, 7 billion people in the world right now. And the Almighty somehow manages to take care of every one of us. And he'll take care of you too. Speaking of taking care, we've got we've gonna no, we don't do two commercial breaks anymore. We need another sponsor. So if you know anybody, if you're interested in putting a sponsorship on the Jewish Hour, we've got some sponsors that have been here for uh, let's see, uh, one of them is 16 years, uh, one of them is uh, eight years. Yeah, we've been we've been got a couple around. One of them is actually. Uh, <laughs> One of them is, is uh, all 24 years. We've had the same sponsor. So the sponsors are, are long-term, and I guess they're sponsoring because they feel it's worth it. So if you want to sponsor the Jewish Hour, drop me a line at RabbiFinman.com. And RabbiFinman.com is where you'll find all kinds of things that we are doing. That and our sister website, which is JewishFerndale.com, which is more specific to Jewish Ferndale, duh. So you'll find archived editions of the show. You'll find missives about the portion of the week. You'll find insights in classes. There's a really good classes page. And the uh, what you need really most to do at this point is to go to the donations page. Baruch Hashem, December's paid. And January is just about paid, but today's the last, <laughs> last, last day of January was Sunday. So we're almost finished with January, and I hope by next week that we can just say, oh, we paid January, thank God. And all we have to worry about February, and if we get February paid off before the end of the month, then I don't do the appeal. I'll tell you, go to RabbiFinman.com if you want to contact me, but I don't make an appeal. So we've been on air. It's 23 years that we're on air. So 20, no, excuse me, 28 years, going on 29, 29, I lost count myself, we started 1994, way back when, so uh, <laughs> it's only because people like you have been listening, and you've been listening now for close to an hour, please go to rabbifitman.com, make your donation, whatever it is, if you want to do $5 a month, you could do that, set it all up, it's all possible, you don't even have to think about it at that point. 
and I acknowledge all gifts, all donations personally. Okay, so the story happened in the early 80s, and the uh, it happened in Israel. And uh, as Rabbi Klishkin mentioned earlier, there were some students, some, some yeshiva students, in Israel, I think in the city of Lod, if I'm not mistaken, which is where the airport is, Ben-Gurion's in Lod, and they met, this group of yeshiva students met a group of Russians who were newly arrived. So there was, among them, an older Russian, and he said, I have to tell you a story. It's an amazing story. He said that when he was a young man, World War II, so a lot of the Russian Jews were forced inland, and a lot of them settled in Asiatic Russia. We're talking about Bukharia and Azerbaijan, these places. And he said that he hooked up with a group that was going to Baku, and they wound up in, in, uh, in Tashkent. And they were talking, this is, this is in the 40s, they, they got together for a Hasidic gathering known as a Fabrengen, and they were talking about seeing the Rebbe, who at that time was the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. And they so, got so excited, they sang a song, that the song goes, It says, Dear brother, let's have, the, the Almighty should give us the strength to go travel to the Rebbe. And some of them were so excited, they said, let's travel to the Rebbe. And what did they do? They took the chairs, and they turned them over, and they put them into a line, and they made like a pretend chair. And they sat in this chair singing that song. And the people that were looking on, it was like, you know, a half a dozen, maybe ten of them were sitting in these, this like, like kindergartners, as this guy described it. And uh, they were singing this song. We were all singing this song. But we were laughing at him. Ah, very interesting. So it's very shortly thereafter, those people that sat in those chairs left Russia. The rest of us that were like laughing, we, we, it took us many years and many of us got far. As you see, I don't know anything about Judaism. So it's uh, a strange story. Yes. What does it remind us, though? That there, are, there is a God. And the Almighty is listening. And the Almighty, if we want to do something, it says, If we're thinking about doing a good thing, the Almighty says, yeah, I think that's a good thing. Let's do that. But you got to think about the good thing that I want to do. That's going to do it for the show. We hope we have a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope you have a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. We hope to see you back again next week. Take care. Through 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.